Hey everyone, if you're a fan of Odd and Bizarre TV, you can join myself, Kevin, and my co-host Ethan as we host our new podcast, Primetime Oddities, available on Apple and Google Podcasts, coming to other podcast platforms very soon. Hey everybody and welcome to In Star Trek We Trust, a Star Trek podcast, where this week we'll be discussing, in anticipation of the upcoming Star Trek Lower Decks, the much-loved but unfortunately often forgotten Star Trek The Animated Series. I am one of your hosts, Kevin, and I am joined via Zoom by... Ethan. And we're going to be discussing, as I mentioned, Star Trek The Animated Series, a series that I have to say we have actually always been a fan of fans of we've always enjoyed the animated series and we um thought it is a fine piece of trek material all these yes years. I, I i couldn't imagine fans ignoring it or thinking it's lesser than yeah i i don't think fans ever thought it was less i just think that they always kind of forgot about it because for quite some time um, the show was considered to be non-canon, and uh, that was kind of the that was sort of the big sticking point as to why the show wasn't really talked about amongst the ranks of the other ones. Right? Like, oh yeah, there was that animated show, but uh, you know, what can you say? I I I always loved the animated series. I've sort of considered it to be the unofficial fourth and fifth season of the original series, and my history with the show is I can remember back, I want to say it's the late 80s, maybe the early 90s, Nickelodeon actually used to broadcast the animated series. That's how I became aware of it. I don't know, but I don't know because I was too little to know. I don't remember which I found I discovered first. I don't know if I discovered the animated series first or the original series. I knew that they were the, you know, I understood that they were the same show in a sense, but I don't know which one I saw first because I was a big Nickelodeon fan back in the day. Yeah, me too. That's where I saw it. I definitely saw the original series first and yeah. Next Generation first. And they also released the animated series on VHS. They um, released about two episodes of tape, and I did have one that I that I ran endlessly. I had the I had a VHS of uh, the dual episodes. I had was the trouble. The uh, excuse me, more tribbles, more troubles, and the infinite Vulcan. Um, those, that was the one that I had. Yeah. Where I just had a very passing, I sort of remembered having seen some of it when mm-hmm. I was younger. Yeah. And, that was about it. and I think it's, it's, it's the thing that I find most remarkable about the original series is the idea that, well, the fact that even though it's animated, it was put on Saturday mornings alongside other kids shows, right? It, that changed nothing. Like it was still, it was still Trek, right? The show was not written down to a kid audience. They were still. It was the same group of writers. They were still doing Star Trek. The only big difference was that they had to tell a story in twenty-three minutes as opposed to forty-eight. Exactly. Which so, in while I was watching it, knowing that it had won an Emmy for um, children's television, and so. <clears throat> There's the different tools that I use um, to 
check out the reading level of certain texts before I give it to my students. So I put in some of the dialogue from the show, um, and it came out. There's two different systems. One, um, it came out as being uh, the writing that someone with 14 years of formal education would be reading. So mm-hmm. that means two years of college. And then another system put it at like high high school level. So it's definitely was written at a very high level. Which, um, and having watched a little bit of an interview with original series and animated series and TNG writer DC Fontana, that was, that age range you mentioned just now was more or less the demographics they were going at, they, the network was aiming for with the original series and didn't know that they had them. Like it was, you know, so. Yeah, and I'm sure the show probably suffered given the fact that it was not in prime time. So maybe some people thought, oh, it's not for me when yeah. it would have been for them um, had it been in, in prime time. Now, there's one interesting thing that I, I really liked about the story that I didn't realize until I read a little bit. The only concession they made to younger audiences was that they cut out the sex and the romance aspects of the, the episodes. Right. Which often I can do without Kirk's, you know, many dalliances right. uh, into love. So right. I think that only helped the show. And, and that became, I think, one. It, that's, that's to me known as one of the cliches of the original series. Anyway, so... Kirk romancing the green skin ladies and stuff like that, like, and and honestly, like, I think, I think people think he does it more than what we actually see on the show, anyway. He does it a fair amount. He does it a fair amount, but it's not like he does it in every single episode, which I think is yeah, that's what everybody that's what everybody always, thinks. Yeah, it doesn't always get physical, but it's usually at least some like lovelorn yeah. looks. As right. soon as any female character shows up. You know, they get the soft focus on the character and the soft yeah. focus on Kirk and kind of do the eyes. Here's here's something interesting with the animated with the animated series that I never really considered until I um you know was rewatching episodes in preparation for this podcast, but the sort of continuity that the the show has with the original one, and I don't mean that in terms of storyline continuity or canon, right? But the idea that they the original series was kind of was low budget, right? And they were working with what they could. And the animated series almost kind of continues that. Like you still in a way, I still feel like I'm watching despite the fact that it's animated, I still feel like I'm watching a low but the low budget nineteen sixties trek, right? Like it still has that feel about it. And like I love the fact that they still they mimic the original series as far as like the Enterprise flybys. They use the same yes. angles and stuff like that. Like it's not, it isn't too great of a leap from the original show, and that's, I and I love that aspect of it. Right. So that was interesting. So I noticed that, and it sort of stuck in my mind. And then when I was reading more about it, apparently they rotoscoped or just painted over the 35 millimeter film yeah. of those shots. Of, you know, the classic Enterprise slowly going by a planet. Yeah. Um, and different things. And it was interesting because I'm watching it and I'm thinking, oh, they only do the same kind of shots of the Enterprise. But then there was this crazy shot of this huge ship and the Enterprise was tiny. It was probably, yes. um, you know, minuscule, like one one hundredth of the size of the other ship. And then I realized, like, okay, they, but, but they still will blow it up when they can. Knowing yeah. That they have the resources. But I love that. Like, the fact that they... 
and that was the obviously the, the the big benefit of doing it in animation, right? They were able to draw whatever they wanted, and do stuff that they were not able to do easily or at all in live action. And yeah, so Whitehead, yeah, um, Lieutenant, Lieutenant. What was the name? Lieutenant's oh, Eric's, Eric's, the, the one in place of Chekhov. Yeah, yes. A, yep. You were able to have an alien uh, crewman. Yep. Because you just couldn't do that with costume. Now and, that brings up something interesting as well. So this comes from I have to give credit to Trek FM podcast. So <clears throat> they're a great they, podcast. Little plug. Yeah, they're really good. Hmm. So they mentioned this memo from um, Roddenberry to DC Fontana that's related to this, and what he said was. Let's rethink the Klingons. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted them to look more alien, but we really didn't have the budget. And he said something about how the the actors like didn't have the right body type. Yep. But he said, since we can't really change what we did then, what if we revealed that there was this other species behind the Klingons that gave them their technology, and they were sort of puppets of them? And this was more of like an octopus slash reptile. Um, mm. Alien, and so he he wanted that to be something that they did with the Klingons. It sort of like made the Klingons disappear at that point, being not that important. Yep. Which is why it shows his influence, but it shows that he's really thinking, um, you know. Of well, also, well, also goes to show that when you have a track, when you change the Klingons for the, for the movies, or you you know maybe slightly modify them for Discovery, and I don't care what anybody says, they were only slightly modified. Okay, when you put the hair back on, they didn't look... I don't think they looked that much different. But the fact that they were thinking about that as far back as the animated series, right? Yeah. Like they because wanted people to like, do what they couldn't do. Right. Because he it, said he always wanted the big bad to be not a humanoid right. species, but he was limited. He could only do humans. Yeah, and it only reinforces the idea that that was something that they were thinking about always, right? Like, it's not like they just update the Klingons in the movies and on Discovery just because they can, right? right. Um, I mean, in some cases, yes, because they have the budget to make them. But, like, wouldn't you want to do that anyway? Like, you can make them look a little bit more alien now? Like, yeah. If you're given the opportunity, because, I mean, maybe a bad example, but it's all in Star Wars Special Edition, right? Luke, there were things that Lucas wanted to do initially that he couldn't do, and now he has an opportunity to do so. And that's like, why not? When you're an artist, you want to try You try to get the best. I mean, I'm I'm the same way with the stuff, that, with the art that I do, so... That, that, no, it's funny. This is what... This situation reminded me of the Special Edition on a very small level. Yeah. That he, oh, I have a Saturday morning cartoon, now I can make the aliens look like I actually wanted them to. It's it's because the look of something is so established and so kind of like in the zeitgeist of the fan base that if you change it because it's familiar to them, if you change it they they flip out, right? Like, oh, this isn't my Star Wars. This isn't my Star Trek anymore, right? So um, but it's almost like we put a retroactive importance on the Klingons because of the films, which right. I think is unfortunate. Yeah, totally. Which is, you know, and I think the same can be said even, and side note, but I think the same thing can be said even about Khan. I don't think Space Seed was that popular of an episode be- prior to The Wrath of Khan even coming out. I think it's only mm-hmm. now that, that people love that movie that Space Seed is now considered to be one of the most popular episodes. I don't know that for a fact. I just, I, that's just my take on that. That's just my, my opinion. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's definitely not one of my. Yeah. Um, but um yeah so 
anyway, back well, to the anime. How did the show come right? about? How did the show come about? Well, what I know is that even after the original series had been canceled in 1969, um, you know, NBC. NBC still wanted to do some some version of Star Trek, and there had been an animation company called Filmation who was responsible for um, doing a lot of um, Saturday morning cartoons. Um, I think. God, I, Ghostbusters. I, yeah, Ghostbusters. The well, that Ghostbusters. Uh, I think I believe they were responsible for Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. Um, okay, yeah. I could be wrong. Maybe Scooby Doo, and I only say that because the character designs looked the same. Looked right. similar. They were very Hanna Barbera like. Yeah, I don't know I, Hanna Barbera. I, 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 I don't know. It just it, the thing is like it has it, the character designs on the animated series resemble ones from other shows of the period. So, um, and I don't know. If, and again, I don't know if that's an artistic style that was just of the time, or if that's or if that's specific to a particular animation studio. Um, but they, yeah, so they made the animated series and um, they put it on Saturday mornings. And as I said, it, they they did not write it down to an audience. They still treated it like it was Star Trek. And, you know, the big difference, of course, is that it's animated, and you also have less than, you know, you have roughly 30 minutes to tell a story. So right. and I think that makes a lot of sense, since it seemed that they were trying to fill that demand that had yeah. come up after the, the syndication of the show and the popularity. Yeah. And sort of thinking, well, well we got to make some, we got to reap some more money out of this thing, the studio and, said. And, and I confess, I don't know, so this is 1973, right? Now, I don't know at, at that time where we are in the, in the, in the in the sort of drive to turn Trek into a movie, I don't I don't know if that's I don't even know if that's something anybody's thinking about yet. Because whenever I hear the story of how the motion picture got put together and how you know Trek is popular in the 70s and right. I never really I never hear the animated series discussed as any kind of like inkling into like any kind of first step toward eventually what becomes the motion picture. I do actually have a... I read a quote on that where Roddenberry yeah. said if he had known that Trek was going to come back either on TV or in film, yep. he said wishes he would not have done the animated series. Hmm. So for him, it's I guess it was one of those he kind of thought it was dead and that was the best he was going to get. I mean, I don't... That seemed like the vibe from the quote. I don't know... And the thing is, I don't know how much the animated series really hurts anything. Right, because it's not like I don't think so. Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, the only thing about the show that, uh, as I was sort of mentioning earlier, was the idea that for quite some time it was not, it didn't seem like. I mean, I don't. And actually, the more I think of it, I could just be falling victim to fan conversations. But the idea that the animated series was not canon, and that seems to have come from yeah. Yeah. That was actually he actually so from what I read, he told Paramount to ignore it, except mm. for um yesteryear. Which is interesting, considering yeah. what we know about Spock, especially now. Right. Um, so it seems like that was something from him. Yeah. Um directly. Which but is odd. It, it's odd. 
does work. It's odd, but also you have to real you know it, people have to realize too that the animated series more or less became canonized because the later spin-offs would occasionally reference things from it. I right, mean, that's it, a good point. So what did canonization even mean when when Roddenberry said that? All it probably meant is when yeah. you're writing things don't use ideas from it. Well, it didn't we, mean anything. Like I don't think fans were out there like they are today discussing what's canon and what isn't. Well, I well, think it was more I mean, just like a production thing. Well, we got an animated series reference as recently as an episode of Picard. They made a reference to an alien species established on the animated series in Picard. Right. Well, now, yeah. yeah. If anybody's curious, they've won a line. It's when Picard finds Riker's cabin, and after he activates the shields on the house, he says, we've been having some problems with the Zinti. That's an alien species established on the animated series, the Xinti. Oh, yeah. And, they and... In the Slaver. The, slaver's the slaver weapon. weapon. And in the unproduced fifth season of Enterprise, they were actually going to be... They were actually going to make an appearance. They even went as far as creating um, artwork for what their ships were going to look like. They were going to appear in season five of Enterprise. I really like that episode. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. So... But my first thought when I was watching it, when I first heard it, I thought they said Zindi, you know... No, 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 yeah. <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to see them again. No. Although we were surprised, we we could not believe that they referenced them in Star Trek Beyond. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, to answer your question, I think canon canonizing it, I think then was more or less just if it's referenced in a television production or film pro- or you know at that time only a television production. Or f- film production, that's what essentially makes it canon, right? Right. So, and Neil Roddenberry was sending out the distinct message: don't reference it, don't make it canon. Yeah, but you know, they they were they they would occasionally throw something in the background on Next Generation. Deep Space Nine made references to it. Enterprise, I I would I think Enterprise probably made the most connection to it with their um, three-part Vulcan um, Forge trilogy show um because that show and this may be a good uh segue into talking about the first episode but the fourth season of vulcan forge arc is directly tied into the animated series basically everything that's established in this about vulcan about the planet vulcan in yesteryear is up is upheld on enterprise right the you know the vulcan just the forge itself the vulcan forge the desert right, right. in um, the desert, right? Yep. You know, even DS9 makes reference of it. Um, yeah. The Vulcan yeah. city of I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this. I apologize because I, I can't remember how they say it. Um, Kershara, like that's oh, all yeah. talked about and referenced in Enterprise. So right. yeah. Oh, yeah. And plus, I mean, the holodeck essentially under a different name showed up. Yes. In, so that's huge. Captain Kirk's middle name being Tiberius first showed up here. Yep. So a lot of these things that are big in Star Trek came from it. And I will say, in the early days of Discovery, when I used to kind of chat on Twitter with the executive producer at the time, Ted Sullivan, when he would actually, like, talk to fans in Twitter comments and whatnot, when there was that episode where where where, um, uh, I forget the episode name, but um, Tyler and uh, Lorca are in sort of a holodeck simulation it's not a full-fledged holodeck but and fans are like crying foul 
one of the things he said was, I said, I remember I said some comment to somebody on Twitter. I was like, well, they, you see the holodeck on the animated series. In a more Albeit, form right. that wasn't Discovery. And Sullivan said, yes, and that's why we felt it was okay to do it on Discovery. He's like, Discovery's not doing a full-fledged holodeck. He's like, you're just seeing characters, simulated characters, but they're not actually in a simulated environment. And he's like, that's yeah. why... He's like, we were, we were trying to show an earlier version of what would eventually become the holodeck. Yeah. So, and that's interesting because yeah. a lot of times things like that happen to fans say, they don't even watch Star Trek. It's true. And it's like, no, they watch Star Trek, they just watch more Star Trek than you. you yeah, know, I mean, more. I don't think the animated series refers to it as the holodeck. No, but it's but clearly... it's... Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, but that's a good... I think that's a good segue. So, the episode yesteryear, which is probably not only the most popular episode of the show, but I would I, I would even say the best episode of the show, because it goes into Spock's backstory, and oh, just given what we know about Spock now, it's interesting to see. And it's got that great connection with City on the Edge of Forever by using the... Um, the Guardian of Forever. So, um, so the basic idea of yesteryear, which I love, is the idea that they're back looking at the Guardian of Forever and they're using it again for historical research. And um, they come back through, and they realize they've kind of messed with time, and the crew does not recognize Spock. And there was something about that that I just thought was really, really, really cool. The fact that they messed with time to a point where, like, they don't even know who Spock is. So Spock naturally has to go back in time and try to figure out where's that sort of point of delineation. And he ends up going back to his childhood on Vulcan. And he's with his father, which is also voiced by Mark Leonard. And it really goes into Spock's backstory as a young child, which we don't really know too much about. And as I mentioned... This episode has some very strong links with Enterprise, which the things I mentioned. Spock's pet, the Salot, which we do see on Enterprise. And it just deals with this whole story about Spock. And it just deals with this whole idea of Spock as a child and, you know, having to come to terms with, like, even with his pet dying, right? Which was something that they did not... Which the network was very against showing, that was, I have to say, that it's was like, heavy. No, yeah. Because you, um, you don't see that on animated shows, on kid shows. And here's the thing, too, right? It was done with such care. Yes. You know, someone that has lost pets not that um, long ago, like, it was very emotional for me. Yeah, and the network saying, I, 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 I mean, I don't think it was a, too strong of a fight between them and the network, but them pushing back on the network saying, no, we think audiences are mature enough to you know, deal with this. And also, even though the show wasn't written for kids, there were kids watching it, right? And yes. kids know what it's like to lose a pet. I know what right. it's like. I, you know, I had pets when I was a little kid, and I, it was devastating when I lost them too. So it wasn't like it was a theme that I wasn't familiar with. Yes, and I really love the dialogue where, I forget who it was, that they were talking about things that had changed, and the only thing that, still, that had changed at that point they say, well, the, just the death of a pet. And, and someone, it might have been Kirk, says, well, that won't mean much in time. And Spock says, well, it might. Long pause. Yeah. To some. Oh, that was great. And and, and Nimoy's performance throughout. Yeah. 
was some, I think some of his best. Right. He brings it on this show so hard. There were times when I sort of felt the Shatner dialogue felt like he was on his way to like to like do some golfing and he stopped in real quick to the studio and trying to get out of there. Right. But I feel like Nimoy brought it. Yeah, agreed. I mean it was it was a heavy episode and it I think it was still something that as I mentioned, like the fact that this is an animated series doesn't change anything. I would still expect to see a story like that on the original series if they decided to tell a story like that. Like that's that's still a story you can tell on the original show, right? I mean, granted showing the Saylot and maybe everything else would be problematic, but you know, they'd find some way around it on the original series, right? Yeah, they just have yeah. someone in a suit crawling yeah. around. Like the guy in the um, like the guy in the Gorn suit. Yes. But again, this goes back to what I mean when I say continuity with the original series, right? The fact that they brought Mark Leonard back to voice Sarek, right? Because don't forget, like they didn't want as I think we were talking about I can't remember if we were talking about it during the recording or just or just before, but like the fact that with this show they wanted to Nimoy was very adamant about having the rest of the cast there, right? And and the fact that they um, did that, not only did they get the entire cast back, say for Walter Koenig, but the fact that they were able to actually bring bring back a guest star, which is only on the show, who was only on the show as Sarek once. Right, but a very important character. A very important character. I believe it was. And Shat, um, Nimoy told the producers that he wouldn't do it unless they brought back Nichelle Nichols and uh, George Takei. Mm-hmm. And he made the point that, first, he knew that they were kind of having financial trouble and they needed work, but secondly, he made the point that the whole point of Star Trek is showing that in the future, we've gotten past all these prejudices. Yeah. And if you drop the two most diverse characters, you're going to send a very, you know, opposite message. Agreed. And, you know, it just... Nimoy is a very special dude. Oh, totally. And you know, he was using his his privilege in that point. Like he knew he like this, they're not going to do the show without me. Well, and also so like therefore, I'm gonna I'm gonna risk my own financial situation to help out people that are not getting the respect they deserve. And like if you're really good, and like if you're really good at uh, picking out voices on the show, right? James Doohan, who plays Scotty, is in many cases is pulling double duty, triple duty. Like he's doing a lot of additional voices outside of Scotty. Even Majel Barrett Roddenberry is doing the same thing, yeah. right? I don't know. So, if good. I mean, it's I, I can tell it's them. It just really, I think it just depends on what your level of fandom is. But yeah, and what no, I mean no, by that is like that. Spock's father. Like that could have been something that they just easily hand off to James Doohan and say, just do it for us. But again, they bring Mark Leonard back. So here, here's a question. We see Sarek. Sarek is a tough dad. You know, he's giving kind of the guilt trip. Not guilt trip, but he's just telling Spock, yeah, like, mm, sure, people sometimes don't succeed, but you're not going to fail. You know? Putting a lot of pressure on him. Um, and even just the the, the um, kind of the talk that he gives to him, where it's very funny because clearly they just use the same sound file of Spock, young Spock saying, yes, father, yeah. Each time yeah. he would yeah. say something, he'd, yes, father. Yep. Yes, father. Very interesting to me. Um, but here's a question: How do you think this 
Sarek, since it's roughly the same time period as the Sarek we see in um, flashbacks on Discovery, how do you think he lined with the Discovery Sarek? Oh, I actually didn't think of that. That's a really good point. Um, hmm. Put me on the spot. I, I don't know. I'd have to. I'd actually have to go back and watch Discovery and on that and see. I, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting observation. I don't. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he was still pretty tough on Discovery, but Discovery definitely humanized him a lot more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so Discovery. I mean, Discovery is is also Discovery staying in line with canon is established on in Journey to Babel, where Spock has not spoken to Sarek for quite some time, because remember Discovery establishes why they don't why they're not speaking to each other, at least from what we see in Journey to Babel. Um, but in terms of the flashbacks, yeah, I don't. I'd have to. I'd have to check out this, those scenes on Discovery again. I mean, I've seen them a bunch of times, but I, they're still not, they still haven't fully sunk in yet. So mm-hmm. I'd have to, yeah, I'd have to see. And I guess technically the flashbacks in 2009's Trek would still be something that would matter, right? Uh, well, yes, because that was actually going to be my next point. So, and it kind of goes back to you saying, you know, fans who like to sometimes hate on Trek, realize, you know, you realize that there's maybe some of it that they haven't seen. I mean, there's that scene, there's that there's that flashback scene in the first Abrams film where Spock's a kid and the Vulcans are teasing him, right? The other Vulcans are teasing him for being a half for being a uh, half breed, which is what Michael calls him actually in the flashback on Discovery. Yeah. The same thing happens in this episode. We see it happen in. We see him getting teased about being half human, and it's you know. They like to think that Abram, the Abrams, they like to try to discredit the Abrams film in some ways because they feel like it just, they're just like, oh no, the writers don't know Star Trek. It's like, no, well, that wasn't a coincidence. They would, they did their research and they, they worked it into the movie. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, so, yeah, it's, the animated series yeah. is prevalent, man. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's rooted, it's rooted in a lot of other Trek shows, so. Another thing I find interesting is that Spock shows up as a cousin. You know, I think this was very cool, and he got to spend all these scenes with with himself. And it was kind of neat that older Spock taught younger Spock about human emotions. Yeah. And told him, kind of explained the whole situation of emotions and how, you know, they're not bad. It's just... (laughs) It's so funny. There's a very, like... There's a very back to the future quality about it. About you know when Marty goes back to 1955 and he's like teaching his dad, showing his dad how to become who his dad eventually becomes, right? Like right. It, it very much it, it feels very much like that. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about Spock is so uh, he well no matter what t- timeline you're looking at, it, he came back into his own life in the 2009 J.J. Abrams film also. Yeah. And then if you look at um what's the other time that he goes back into his own life? Maybe that's it. Anyway. Um oh then Michael Burnham goes back into his life and saves him. So you've got two times yep. that time travel saved Spock from dying. Yep. So my yeah. thought was 
Wouldn't the temporal Cold War police show up? Spock, a real talking to. I, I, I don't. Temporal anomalies in his life, lots of them. Janeway and Kirk are, are the bigger offenders in this case, so I think uh, they have enough to worry about with them. But, uh, but you raise an interesting point. I mean, between what we see in the original series, the animated series, Discovery, and then in the parallel timeline in the Abrams films, Spock's past life, they're pretty consistent with one another. I think the, the, the big deviation with the Abrams films versus prime timeline is that you don't have that kind of fractured relationship between Spock and Sarek, right? Uh, you don't have that in the Abrams movies. But right. um, but that's okay. Because up until Discovery, we didn't actually really know what it was that why Spock and Sarek were not speaking to each other by the time we get to Journey to Babel. Discovery's, right. Discovery establishes what that reason is. Right, and also knowing Vulcans, yeah. I don't know that they needed a reason. You know? It could have yeah. just been like, well, we were in different places, so we didn't talk. So. Well, you know, but Trek in general has basically, even going as far into next to the next generation, when Sarek appeared on Next Generation, I mean, they they do reference in the episode Sarek, which I bet you can't guess what that episode's about. Um, they talk about how they make reference to the fact that Sarek and Spock have a very kind of, you know, difficult relationship. So, yeah. Right, so that, again, it is good to consistency. It, it does make one wonder, though, you know, when we talk about yesteryear, like, again, people, uh, when they try to discredit Discovery, they say, well, Michael Burnham's not in Yesteryear, and I, at one point I said, well, right, neither is Cyborg. I mean... Yeah. And, you know, like we said, it could be before she got there, after she left, or she wasn't home that day. I, I'd have to look at... The, I, I'd have to look up the years, because I, I don't know it off the top of my head. So it, it could be... And again, this we're only seeing like a small window into that time. So she could be there. She, as you said, she could even be, yeah, she could be not at home or she hasn't gotten there yet or she left already. Like we don't know how long Michael is with Spock's family. I don't believe we do. I don't think it's not really no. fully established how long she's there for. So it's definitely a few years, but again, it, it goes, it's the old thing about, with Trek fans, just because it's not mentioned doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So, right. Um, so when I watched this recently, I also went back and rewatched City on the Edge of Forever because it's been a bit. Yeah. Um, and an interesting. Just a couple notes between the two. The voice in City on the Edge of Forever of the Guardian is way better than on the animated series. It sounds like it sounds like somebody doing a Scooby Doo ghost. Oh, Spock. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe, um, uh, I, for, I forgot about that. Yeah, it does. That's great. Um, and but then, again, uh, yeah. One, one of the notes from City on the End of Forever, not to go too far afield, but, um, like, as much as I, I kind of thought back to, um, you know, the comment about Kirk and the death of Edith Keeler. And he really just went on one walk with her and had a couple conversations. Well, 
that was yeah. it. It was weird. He had this deep love for her. Well, that's what I... I mean, I love that quote by Kurtzman, and we've talked about it often, that if that was done today, he'd be mourning her for a couple of episodes. And I thought to myself, like, okay, but he didn't know her for that long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They so one walk. They maybe, talked a few times. Maybe, maybe for a couple of days, but we don't know how... I don't know how much time passed between sitting on edge forever to the next episode. It definitely wasn't a day. It's probably longer yeah. than that. So, I mean, and and I'll be the first one to say, as big of a Trek fan as I am, I don't understand star dates, and I never will. I, I've seen explanations, and I still don't get it. That's funny. I understood them once. Like I, I, I really, I looked at it and I figured it out and I understood it. But I, I all I know is original series era. It's four digits and then a decimal point and then one more and then by the time you reach next generation, it's five digits decimal and then yeah and then Enterprise actually uses actual calendar dates. So uh, yeah, I, I the the starting thing is one aspect of Trek I just will never be able to wrap my head around, and I have no shame in saying that. Um, that was the interesting thing is that City on the Edge of Forever is anti-pacifist. Right. Well, that was interesting. And then my friend is obviously Chinese. Was, was great. Okay, so another episode to discuss, which we really enjoy, is Slaver's Weapon. Yeah, so Slaver's Weapon, it's based on a story by Larry Niven, mm-hmm. who wrote some episodes for the original series and is, you know, a Hugo Award-winning um, author. So, you know, again, keeping the writing level really high. Now, this one has... Um, oh, one other note on him which is really interesting. So, In 1968, a bunch of sci-fi writers put out an ad that was in support of the Vietnam War, and he was one of them that signed on to it. And in the 80s, he was an advisor to Ronald Reagan about his Ronald Reagan Star Wars missile defense program. Interesting, but okay. Yeah. And the interesting Random. thing I find, really, right? So that's part of the Cold War, the missile defense system. Yep. And it's space. And this episode is about sort of this super weapon from the past from another species. So. Yes. It is kind of interesting. So in this, they set up these things called stasis boxes. And they claim that some great technology um, came from finding these boxes. And they contain these different tech breakthroughs. But also, one of them had this super powerful weapon in it, so then they were deemed too dangerous, and they had to make sure that only Starfleet had control of them and didn't let them fall into the wrong hands. And they're literally just a box, and you're right. just something. Um, so the Enterprise finds one of these, and this other group, the Kazinti, who are these sort of like... Cat people. Yeah. Cat and they have a pink, and they go around in a pink spaceship... Yes. Side note, the <laughs> side note, the person who did coloring on the show was colorblind and didn't realize it was pink. Right. So I yeah, I read a little bit on how in there was a later episode that I'll talk about where one of the creatures was like pink and purple and green. It was just yeah. crazy in color. Um, <laughs> so in this uh, Uhura, Spock and Sulu get captured um, by the Kazinti. Mm-hmm. And they get control of the weapon, and they sort of battle back and forth over the weapon. And eventually, um, you know, our heroes get control of it. Now, the thing I found really interesting here... um, First off, I just love the Kazinti as aliens. 
Well, yeah, I mean, he, because these were not aliens you could have done on the original show, right? This is really taking advantage of the fact that the show is animated and you can just draw whatever the hell you want. Yes, because they were very, like, they were humanoid, but they were also very strange proportions. They were very mm. long and tall and kind of lean. Yep. Um, and they're meat eaters, but they're such meat eaters that they judge all species on whether or not they eat meat and how much meat they eat. So at a point when they have Spock, Uhura, and Sulu, um, they realize that they're going to consider Spock and Uhura um, inferior see, beings because their women have no intelligence, so they see, would just dismiss Uhura. And Spock, they call him a um, an eater of roots and leaves, so see, they don't trust him. And then at least Sulu is omnivorous, so he eats some meat, so they trust, they respect him a little bit. And I gotta say that is such a classic. Star Trek type of alien, right? That you would only see on the original series. Like, I feel like Next Generation and DS9 and all the other shows don't delve into making something alien enough. And I just love the fact that the original, that the animated series does something like that. Just, I don't know. It just, it seems so... I, I just, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, I feel like you wouldn't see that on the other shows. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, there's a logic to it, and it's sort of worked out. Yeah. They like people based on the meat that they eat. Um, and it's very interesting, too. Uhura says, because they have a telepath. They're not all telepathic, but some are, so they can read their thoughts. And they say, if they start to read your thoughts, think about vegetables, and then they'll get out of your brain. <laughs> um, think about salad. Think about salad. <laughs> And at one point, one of them says, I don't want to go back into her brain. I keep thinking, I keep getting the experience of, like, crushing yellow roots between molars or something, between flat teeth. And he's very offended, and it's very tough for him. But um, Uhura says, their telepaths are, un- are all unhappy neurotics. Mm. And it's the characterization of this one alien, the, the telepath, because he has this, like depressed, neurotic vibe to him that's yep. very weird that I've never seen in a cartoon of that era. And the voice is great. Um, and they call him Bedraggled. <laughs> which is another great word. Um, so, man, the writing was super impressive. The action was kind of dumb. Um, but what it comes down to is a shape-shifting weapon it's all these different types of weapons, but then the weapon itself outsmarts the aliens by turning into a self-destruct and it destroys them, but it saves um, our heroes. Mm. And then it ends with Spock saying, strange how the past so often breaks through into the present and leaves with this nice thought about it. Um, But it, it was really interesting because... It almost set up like this whole other idea that I could see why this would not be canon because yep. if you have these weird bodies that show up that have been giving <clears throat> technology to the Federation, it seems like that would be a lot. It'd be interesting yeah. for me to now, as I mentioned, they were planning to have the, Z- the Xinti appear if there had been a fifth season of Enterprise, and they went as far as to actually design the starships and they made a reference to them on Picard now the fact that the fifth season of Enterprise was unproduced I mean 
you know, whatever they're planning, you could say it's not canon at this point, right? But the fact that Picard, so the fact that Picard made reference to the to those aliens, and it'd be interesting to me what they could lo- what they would show them as looking like in a live action show. Yeah, right? because I've seen Enterprise did justice to the aliens that it did bring back from the original series, anyway. It did. I mean. What I think Enterprise doesn't get enough credit for, one particular aspect, is that the is that Enterprise brings back the Tholians, who we see in the Tholian web on the original series. And the Gorn. And the Gorn. But, like, in the original series, you only see the Tholians from sort of, you know, you only see their head, really. And mm. it was speculated for a long time, like, are they just wearing, like, a helmet? Like, what do they really look like? And the fact that Enterprise actually maintained, like, no, they're actually, like, a crystal, a crystalline type of species, but they're also a kind of arachnid species, because other sh- the other shows make reference to the fact that, like, that the Tholians have really good silk, right? And and for the fr- and Enterprise kind of establishes you actually now see a full-bodied Tholian on Enterprise, and they have, they, they're very arachnid-like. Yes, which, which I just think is fantastic, and so I would love to see how a modern Trek production would handle something like the Zint, the Xinti, right? Yeah. And yeah. I wonder what they would do characterization-wise because they're very belligerent and they've had these wars in the past with humans, right? And they're still very bitter about it. One of them talks about how uh, he looks forward to tasting like the the meat of a human, like his ancestors did in their wars. I mean, yeah, and you know, and I have to believe that had the Xinti appeared on Enterprise, right, it's more than likely they would have just been played by actors and they would have looked, you know, I'm sure they would have looked cool, but I don't think it would have been that far of a leap from what we've seen actors play other alien species on Trek before, right? Well, the fact the they did all CGI, I believe. They did. They did. Um, I mean, but... It was CGI at a much earlier stage, and so I, I don't. Yeah, I um. But the also didn't really have dialogue and things. Wasn't it just sort of fighting them. I mean, it had dialogue, but you didn't actually literally see it speak. You heard it over the yeah. over the intercom. But we're dealing with you know we're in the year 2020 now, right? So, right. you know, it could be a case of like both. If Picard was to show the Zinti, right? It could be played by a person, but it could be, like, very augmented special effects, right? Oh, yeah, and there are plenty of full CGI characters in TV shows now. So yeah, and, and and I will say, kind of just a quick side note, when you were talking about the characters early on, talking about um, the character of um, Lieutenant Arix, who took the place of Chekhov, when, at, at the end of Star Trek Beyond, um... You know, when unfortunately the actor Anton Yelchin passed away, um, who plays Chekhov, some fans actually began to speculate, hey, like, if they do a fourth movie, they should do Lieutenant Eric's, right? right? Because even in the fan series, Star Trek continues, they bring him on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, how cool would it would be to, you know, and I say in quotes, canonize into live action... Lieutenant Eric's, right? Right. Yeah, or just his species gave, um, in general. They already give Scotty a little, little CGI friend. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he was really no, he wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't CGI. Yeah. Well, anyway, they certainly could figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been that would have been interesting. I, 
hope there are more one day. Well, you know, I, I this is the thing. I think it'd be great if Strange New Worlds actually does this. And I mean, you can say you can say whatever you want about how they write, but you can't tell me that they're not rooted in canon, right? I mean, I I would be totally cool if they brought in like maybe not Arix, but like his species, right? Or right. and we got a great Emerson. alien crew member on Discovery. Which, you know, it always seemed like there should be more. I'm sure it was just more of a production problem, but given that the Federation is a federation of planets... Right. And the, so few of certain planets... Mm. You yeah. know, I understand. But I would like to see more. So, um... Next episode that you want to... Next episode. So I wanted to just quickly, about visuals, so beyond the furthest star... Yep. This is actually the first episode. Um... You can see that they're showing what they can do in this that they could not do in the series. Yep. Uh, the original series. Because the uh, insect plant-like ship, which actually reminded me a lot of, in Picard, the um, the flowers mm-hmm. that defended... Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. ...planet there. Yeah. But don't forget the Zindi. Where... Don't forget the Zindi insectoids. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. So this one, you get this ship, and you see the ship, and it looks sort of like plant-like, but then you see the Enterprise come in, and the Enterprise, like I said, is one one-hundredth the size of the ship. Yep. And it's an incredible visual that we never got anything like that on Well, the- you, you you only see that on the original series like a handful of times. You see it in the Corbomite Maneuver when the Viserys comes in. You see it on the Doomsday, with the Doomsday Machine. But that's kind mm. of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then there's another one where they show the crew on walking on this ship. Mm-hmm. And they are tiny, tiny little specks on this enormous ship. And they're walking, like, outside. Yeah. So in that, space, yeah. That's the other thing where, you know, if this came out today, people would say, they don't have EV suits and a belt. Because that, that's what they do in this. It's a concession to the fact that they probably didn't want to have to draw, you know, like, EV yeah. suits on them for them. You know what else they don't have? It was the original series. They established that there was a tricorder, that a type of tricorder that can detect if you're lying. <laughs> okay, I never saw that again. Yeah, that would have been handy in a lot of cases. Exactly. Well, they don't. I guess they don't need it with Troy around, right? That's true. One thing that was very weird with those EV suits belts is that, in that case, they needed it because they were in you know space on yeah. the ship. But most of the time, they're just on a planet. And they have them, whereas in the original series, they never had, they never felt the need to do anything about it. They just let them walk around. Yeah, I mean, it's I can think of, I can think of at least one instance on the original series in the. Um, they would actually wear wear a physical suit. Right? When they wore an actual physical suit, uh, they, when they yeah. went aboard the Defiant in the Tholian web. But yeah, so um, walking around on a random planet, they're usually just walking around on a random planet. Right. That, I mean, that's. But they always have that establishing line of dialogue when they say, oh, it's an M-class planet, which establishes we don't need to wear an EV suit because it's right. okay, you know, right? Lots of M-class planets. Yeah. Um, so the, here's another like great bit of dialogue to just show the level of this writing. is a great example. So mm. um, when they're on the, the ship, it's huge. They're inside of it. It's a very alien, obviously, uh, environment. And Bone says... 
I get the feeling that something's watching us. And Scotty says, yeah, me too. And Spock says, that's merely a physiological symptom of latent primal superstition. The fear of primitive people confronting something unknown to them. So I think it's great because, first off... That is such a Spock line, too. Such a Spock line? And it's, you know, you you need to have a good vocabulary to understand that. Mm. And... He's giving them a sick burn, but in a very Spock-like way. But where he's same... like, yeah. you have these remnants from when you were, you know, cave people, and if you went too deep into the cave, you were supposed to be afraid, and that's all it is. But here's the other thing about that that I like. If I'm watching this show and I'm 10 years old, I just learned something. Yeah. I just learned some new vocabulary. Right, yeah. And maybe you even learn, like, huh, am I... Do I have yeah. uh, the fear of primitive people confronting something unknown to them that built into me? It, it's that? so interesting to me, right? Just as a side comment of Spock in general, right? When you look at Trek and you just see how far humanity has come, technologic, technological-wise, technologically, mm-hmm. the fact that somebody like Spock can still consider them consider us to be a primitive species in that in that respect, mm-hmm. I just I love. Like for all of our advancements, we're still no, not that far removed from our primitive um, right, right, ancestors. Right, yeah, a, a latent primal superstition. Being yeah, like it's you guys have moved past it, but it's still deep down in you somewhere. Yeah, it's just like if if we're on if you're on top of something tall, you kind of get this feeling because our bodies are built to not um, you know want to die. So yeah, right. There are certain right. things that happen that we react to no matter no matter what. And also, I would like to discuss. I know you have. You would like to say something about the counterclock incident before that. Um, yep. So the one. This is the episode that they won the Emmy for. How, comma, sharper than a serpent's tooth? Which I don't understand the wording on that title. Why is it how, comma, sharper than a serpent's tooth? I'm not sure. Hmm. Um. So this one's interesting because it's a Super Trek concept that's fantastically interesting so they encounter this alien ship and it looks like a dragon like a sort of like a chinese dragon that you would see you know mm-hmm. throughout chinese culture and if you go to the um chinatown uh, chinese new year parades you'll see them it looks a lot like that um and then they go onto this sh- ship and they see a mayan pyramid something that looks like egyptian text on an obelisk they see chinese architecture and it comes to find out that this Kukla Khan was an alien that went to Earth and established himself sort of as a god, and he was trying to help humanity to be more peaceful. And he said that he would return when they completed his city to his specifications. So it's a way of tying together all of these, um, you know, ancient architecture on Earth, all related to this one alien. Um, and then it gets into the great concept of he wants to give, it's a lot in Trek, he wants to give peace and perfection to humanity, but they have to, like, give up their free will mm. in order to get it. And, of course, Kirk, the the champion of free will, argues that. But a man cannot give up his free will for perfection. We must make mistakes. We must learn and grow. But the achievement will be ours. Yeah, I... I, I like, that... That that was not never one of my favorite episodes of the series, oddly enough. 
the Emmy Award winning show. That the Emmy Award winning episode was not one of my favorites of the show. Interesting. Yeah. I really liked it. I really liked it. I just thought it was a concept that was really fun. I mean, I shouldn't say I don't. It's not that I don't like it. It doesn't stand out. It never stood out to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love um, the idea of humanity forgetting that there actually was this alien that sort of guided them in a lot of mm. their ancient religions and things. And that was one where this so this this alien, when he finally reveals his true form, which takes him a while, they have to earn his true form, he's this dragon-looking thing, but he kind of has a snake face, and then he has like a pink horn coming off his head, and he's just the worst colors, green and purple yeah. and pink. Yeah. Which is, again, another, you know, case of uh, colorblindness. Yeah. It, yeah. it weirdly it weirdly works because the whole show has way more pink and lavender in it than you would expect any. So it gives it a like a unified look. Well, and and just on sort of the technical aspect of the show, if I could for a second, you know, in spite of the fact that they could essentially draw whatever they wanted, you still had a lot of technical issues on the show from time to time. Like because it was, they were limited in the animation that they could do, right? But you had instances of like, you know, they'd have the wrong color on somebody's arm. Like you'd be in a blue uniform, and the arm would be the uniform arm would be would be red, it would be blue, it would be a different color, right? And mm. I, I had kind of hoped that, or even you know, to your point, they they have pinks this and the. When the show came out on Blu-ray, one of the things I had kind of hoped that they would do is sort of fix fix those things because it's not difficult to fix it on an animated show it's literally you drop a paint bucket and you're good and you you know you're good like i i wish they had kind of taken the opportunity because that, that would not be any sort of like big heavy lifting like you know re you know upscaling and redoing all the effects for the original series same with next gen the fact right. that you just the, yeah mistakes Maybe not change the colors of the aliens because that was, is part of yeah. it. Yeah, when someone's arm disappears in, for one scene or something. I, I wish they had exactly. taken the opportunity to kind of fix to fix some of the technical glitches that cropped up on the show from time to time over the two seasons that they had. Um, so that was kind of a disappointment. And again, I mean, I can't imagine that would really have cost that much to fix. Because again, we're not talking about something on the scale of you know, transferring next gen into high definition, and same with the original series, right? This is literally just these are animated cells. Yeah, yeah. It seems like, um, yeah, they just kind of threw it on there. Right, and it wouldn't be a case of like, you know, how fans react to the special edition of Star Wars, right? This is these are this is literally fixing mis- these are this is fixing yeah. mistakes. Exactly. Yeah. But no, they went a different way. So, so that um, brings us to one of your favorite underused characters, I think. Yes. The, this point, Commodore April. The final episode of the show, oddly enough. So um, this is another case of them, of the animated series, establishing new lore with Trek and having other shows reference it, right? So we learn in this episode that so we, we knew going into this episode that there was a captain of the Enterprise before Kirk, which is Captain Pike, who we did see in the Menagerie and in the Cage. But now this episode tells us there was somebody before him also. So there were so now we learn there were two captains of the Enterprise before Kirk. And this captain was there when Enterprise was built. 
This is the Enterprise's very first captain, Robert mm-hmm. April, um, who, for a long, up until Discovery, um, you know, had been seen in literature and whatnot. And I think he even, I think they even wrote something on him in the original like Star Trek Writers Manual when the show was getting put together. But Discovery is the first show that, the first live action show that canoni- that canonizes Robert April in the live action shows. So, um, yeah, we find out that Robert April was, in fact, the first captain of the Enterprise, and his wife, Sarah April, was the chief medical officer on the Enterprise. So, and I and I just, I love this episode, because I love the fact that it, this is, not only does it establish him, but it just, it gives us more lore about the Enterprise itself. And I think even some of the non-canon literature, maybe Strange New Worlds can go into this if they ever find the opportunity, that Robert April is actually Captain Pike's CO. So there's every Oh, so he served under him. Every reason to believe that Pike was actually the first officer of the Enterprise before he actually captained it. Makes so sense. um and like Robert April I mean that's I mean talk about not knowing anything about uh you know Trek before Kirk comes along, the Enterprise before Kirk comes along, right? Like not only do we not know anything, not know much about Pike's tenure on the Enterprise, and you know we're going to thank God, but there's even there's even a good five, ten years before that. So less than April. Yeah. So <laughs> I thought to myself one day, imagine if Strange New Worlds is a season where April comes on, and they start demanding an a-, a Captain April series. <laughs> we start demanding a Captain April series. That would I'd be surprised if they could catch lightning in a bottle again. But it, I mean. April to me is a very. I, I've always envisioned April, Captain April, as, and I'll try to articulate articulate this as best I can. I've always envisioned him as being this captain of the Enterprise, but a captain who had by the time he captains the Enterprise, he's probably got like twenty five years of captain experience under his belt already. And the Enterprise is kind of his last tour as a captain. He's sort of this captain. If I can make a comparison in some ways. I picture him as being like one of those old salty sea captains who was there when ships were being guided by sails and he was there long enough to see them make the transition over to like coal. So contemporary of Archer. Yeah, like he's 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 a captain from the old days, but he's seeing this all this change come during his time. So again, as I mentioned, like he 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 would be the, like the sea captain who started off captaining transatlantic liners when they were still using sails and by the time he's getting ready to retire they've already switched over to coal and there's he's seeing like this he's seeing everything change like in other words like his days are coming to an end right yeah in a world that's like not quite his right still part of right yeah yeah right um like lord montbatten uh, of the british royal family yeah i mean i liken him to i mean and it may not be the best comparison considering who it is, but I liken him to the captain of the Titanic, right? The captain of the Titanic was actually, he was a long veteran of sea captains. And he captained the Titanic, but he had actually planned on, on its maiden voyage, but he had actually planned on retiring once the ship returned to Southampton from its maiden voyage. So I, 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 in other words, like I picture it as being something similar to that, right? Like the Enterprise is the first or in this case, second, of a new class of starship, 
that's going to bring Starfleet into a new era of exploration and just technological advancement. And he's kind of there for the handoff of this, right? But, like, yeah. he'll this is the last ship he's going to captain before, and then he's going to pass it on to these new, younger captains that are going to take Starfleet into the next sort of generation, if you will. Right. Yeah. The old, Yeah, I like that a lot. The only thing I think makes that not is because when, when i think of the nx01 and then the enterprise like i don't see them as that revel i don't see the, the uh, enterprise from the original series being that revolutionarily more advanced than the nx01 well i mean it's it's a hundred years later right but i think where i'm going with it is i what i'm trying to say is that i think the Enterprise and just the Constitution class vessels in general, which are basically, as established in Discovery, as being like the pride of Starfleet, right? I think they do, for their respective era, similarly to what the NX-01 did, and that they're sort of ushering in this new era of Starfleet. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. That brings me to something, too. So his wife, Sarah, I believe, she says that she was, not only was she... Um, medical officer in the Enterprise. She's an mm-hmm. officer on the first warp drive ship. Yeah. What was the first warp drive yeah. ship? Yeah, so that's that where we get into one. a continuity issue, because they, they, they run into the uh, the USS Bonaventure, and I think they say it was the first vessel equipped with a warp drive. Yeah. Which, no. <laughs> it's just, no. Right. That doesn't... That the doesn't, main thought yeah. is, like, was it the NX-01? But no, because they would have no. had to have had little ships before that. No, and this is where you get into the whole canon continuity issue, right? Because even though the animated series is established as being part of canon, things like that sometimes cause issues with the other shows that take place around it, right? Because I'm sure in 1973 right. nobody thought, well, we're going to make a prequel show. Well, yeah. And t- you know, so... Yeah. But... Could it still work? Only because we don't know how many ships there were between um, well, between the, the first one that went up in first contact and the, the NX-01. Yeah. But there had to be smaller ships to work out all the kinks before you made NX-01. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I, it, so the way I've worked this out, things like that out in my sort of headcanon is, um, you know, for example, the warp scale, right? I think you have a warp scale in the original series and you have a warp scale in Next Generation. I mean, granted, the Enterprise in Next Generation obviously goes faster, but I think, like, sometimes with the advancement of technology, they sort of, they almost, like, realign the warp scale. So, like, in other words, like, what may have been warp 7 in the original series now may equate to, like, warp 3 in Next Generation's time, right? Uh So I'm wondering, like, if there's something similar, like, you know, did... They may call it a warp drive in that episode, but, like, is that really... Are they calling it a warp drive retroactively? Was it actually called something else? You know what I mean? Like, did they refer to it as something else when the... I don't know. That's just... Again, that's my own headcanon. But Trek's canon is not perfect, so... Yeah. I'll just assume it was, like, an intermediary ship between... Yeah, is that from Cochrane's first... Attempt and the NX one because I think the wasn't the registry number like NCC zero one or something. It was like it was it was a low registry number as I believe. I think. I believe it was yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I, they just 
started a new, you know, identification system. Well, the, yeah. It doesn't matter. Well, it's, and it's it's never really clear what NCC actually means. I mean, it's it's some sort of advancement on military aircraft, but like all we know is that NCC stands for like you know regular starships, and NX is meant to be experimental. Although I don't really know how that ties in with the NX01. I mean, unless you can, because they call it the NX class. So in other so in a way, it kind of factors in what I was saying. Like later on, NX it, by the time you get to the 23rd and 24th century, the registry designation NX stands for something else, right? Shouldn't Discovery be an NX then if it's experimental? Well, the way the way the way it works in Trek is that when you have a class of starship, right? When you have so you have the Constitution class, for example, the prototype of that class would be called the USS Constitution. And its registry number would probably be NX dash something. So the first ship of every class in Trek is established as being an experimental vessel, and its registry is NX something. So, and it's always named after the class that it's um, that it is. So, um, yeah. So wait, the, the spore drive was added to Discovery. Discovery is not designed to be a spore drive ship, is that correct? It was Discovery and the, uh, the Glenn, the, U- the USS Glenn. But yeah. those are cross-field class starships. So, this, so there, is, there is a USS Crossfield okay. out there okay. somewhere. So, yeah. okay. so, they, they added, yeah, so they added the spore drive. So it wasn't experimental because they didn't build it to be a spore drive ship. Right. Correct. Got it. Correct. The spore drive itself was experimental, not the ship. The technology was experimental, not the ship. Yeah, I mean, if you and here's the thing: if you go back and watch Star Trek Three and Star Trek Four, the Excelsior, mm-hmm. it's regi- you see it. Its registry is NX two thousand. By the time you get to Star Trek Six, because the and the Excelsior actually was an experimental vessel because they established it as being experimental, with they're experimenting it with transwarp drive, which is what we see in Star Trek Three. Scotty sabotages it, and I guess and Transwarp is considered a failure. So by the time you get to Star Trek VI, they recommission the Excelsior to just be a regular, a regular starship for regular service. So it becomes NCC-2000, and that's the vessel that Sulu is in command of. I so, but it, it actually kind of calls into question what you were saying as well, because they were using it. They were that ship was also using an experimental type of propulsion, Transwarp drive in this case. So. Yeah. And they can move them back and forth from an NX to an NCC, so why can't they move it from an NCC to an NX? Yeah, and the Defiant on DS9 was an, was an NX class, was an NX uh, registry number as well. I have an answer, right? They're at war. They don't want to give away that it's an experimental ship that's important. Why would they, why would they advertise that for the enemy to see? I don't, assuming the enemy knows that that's what that means. Yeah, but their intelligence might, so that's why you do it. Yeah. So Alft. Yeah. All right, so um, yeah, and I, I would say in closing, the animated series is again a fine piece of Trek. It's got some fantastic episodes, some great character development. You talked mm-hmm. about some really great dialogue. Um, I mean, it's a great show. It's a great Trek show, and I and I love the fact that it's becoming more and more embraced. Yeah, it's. It... The thing that I actually, I don't mind the half an hour. I've said it before that there are many original series episodes that I wish were a half an hour. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah. So I really don't. I don't mind the half an hour. I think it works pretty well. Yeah. And um, yeah, just like the original series, it's got some uh, clunkers, and it's got some right. really great episodes. Right. It, it, it deserves its place alongside the original series. And again, you know, it even has it even brings along some of the original series campiness as well, which I love. You know, they don't they don't they don't not do that because it's animated, right? You know, Kirk still does his barrel rolls and stuff like that, right? It's it's great. It still feels like Yeah, it still feels like the original series. It's just animated. Yeah. Yeah. Um but you know, as I mentioned, this is all in anticipation of Star Trek Lower Decks, which as of this recording is about to premiere tomorrow. Um, so, and we didn't really touch upon the show that much. Um, what are your hopes for the show? With this show, what I hope is that, um, I hope it's funny. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be funny. And I hope that they... Funny, but respectful. In other words, like, Trek is not going to be the punchline of all the humor, right? Right, you can still be irreverent. Right. And I think we already saw that when she, you know, I mean, it's very silly. There'll be a bat left laying around and she's drunk and she grabs it. I mean, I mean, it's silly, but it's using the universe to be silly. Right. I think I'm look, I saw a clip. I saw the clip. I saw the trailer. Like I'm, I'm in, I mean, this is new territory for Trek and I want to see how they do it. Um, I don't, like like haters, I don't look at this and be like, well, this is being disrespectful. How dare they do Trek like this? Like, you know, the whole point of them doing this, and even by extension, the animated show on Nickelodeon, they're trying to broaden the audience and make it appeal to different demographics and different audience members of all types, right? Like, that's... And I think... And I'd love to see... And I really want, love to see what they do with the show. And it even makes me wonder, like... You know, when you're on a starship and you're and you are literally on the lower decks, like how aware are you of what's going on if you're not on the bridge? Right? I mean red shirts goes into this a little bit, right? But I don't know. I yeah. the, the the idea of the show I just find really funny and look, I'm cheering them on. I wanna see how they I wanna see how they do it. And you know, if I don't like it then I don't like it. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna prejudge it. Just because I just because of what they're doing with it. No, and I'm into it. From everything that I really expect that it's going to use, you know, the deep cuts of the universe to make us laugh. And I right. feel like it's going to be one of those shows that's going to. Re- the more you know about Trek, if you don't go into it with the attitude yep. of um, looking for things to hate, the more you're going to laugh. The more you're going to enjoy it. And, and I'm going to play this card, and I don't care. Like the animated series, you can draw anything, right? And what does that mean? If you want to bring on, because of where it's set, it's set just after Nemesis, I believe, they could go to Deep Space Nine. They could go run into Next Generation. They could voyage your characters. Like, all you need is a voice. You don't have to worry about an actor being too old, right? And they've been very coy about that, uh, I believe, like about them seeing people that we may run into, so... I think we're going to see slash hear Picard. Like, wouldn't you love to see them dock at Deep Space Nine and they go to Quark's bar? Like, the Lower Decks crew Quark's goes... A perfect place for them to go. Exactly! <laughs> exactly right! Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean... And look, 
You could even get, I mean, granted, I don't know if they do it, but you could even get Shatner to come on, and if they're doing, like, a holodeck recreation of Kirk, he could voice Kirk or something like that, right? Like, you could even go that far if you wanted to. So, once again, you have the advantages that the original animated series had, and I have no doubt that this show is going to do that. Take me to Deep Space Nine. Take me to DS9. Give me the holographic Doctor from Voyager. Right, that would be fantastic if they if that if their ship actually has him. Oh, uh, that'd be great. That'd be great. I would yeah. love I would love the fuck out of that. Yeah, I think though the, the thing that they mu- that would be cool is if so there's like the perfect balance where it's funny. Mm-hmm. It sort of advances the universe by showing us things we don't haven't seen, and it gives us characters that we care about. Yeah, I don't know if it'll do all three. That's a tough balance to do in a half an hour um but i think that that's sort of like my dream for it it would do all three of those things i think it's going to be a fun show i think it's going to be very respectful of the world and i don't think it's going to make the star trek world its punchline right so no this will not be chatner on, on Saturday no it'll be it'll be finding humor within the world itself it won't be making fun of the world it'll be finding humor with out of the situations as very much like star trek 4 does right um, but I think the difference is in this case is they're actually writing jokes with a punchline. The humor in the voyage home came out of the situation that they were in. So, um, yeah. but I, I still suspect there'll be a little bit of that with this anyway. So, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Should we? And to close out, should we address? Um, should we have a, a haters' corner quickly? Um, of Romulan, what was it whiskey? Oh God. <sighs> yes. Yeah. That... So, we'd we like to talk about the haters because we find it silly. But so one that came up was in the clip that was released um, for Comic Con. One character, character that was drunk. She was drunk on Romulan, not ale, whiskey. And some people had some major problems with this because obviously anyone that watched Star Trek would know. Romulans only have ale. Yeah, they're not allowed to have any other types of beverages at all. You know, right. humans have tons of drinks. We go, if we go to a human bar on Earth, right, this is only one drink, right? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. That, to me, made things crystal clear in that when they can't find something to hate on, they'll reach for anything. Yes. They'll reach for it anything. Also lets you know that the problem is, it's different. Yes. It's not what they've seen before. That's it. Yeah. That's the problem. Star Trek fans do not like change. That's, I mean, that's really what it is. They don't like change. Once you take them out of, once now, you, you introduce things that they're not familiar with, then they don't like it. And that's, you know, this is a small segment, obviously. Not great fans like you out there listening and us. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I think that. I have a feeling that um, if that's for people that that's this is the attitude that they're watching it with, they're going to have a lot of fodder because mm-hmm. the show I think is going to have a lot of things. So I look forward to hearing the whining about things not being exactly the same as everything else. Yeah, I, I mean they're doing world building, right? Like, yeah. fuck, man, they have. I think it was brilliant. They have one more beverage type, so you just built the Romulan society a little bit more. Yeah, I thought yeah. it was brilliant because when she said, I'm drunk on 
And I was like, oh, it's going to be Romulan ale, right? And I said Romulan, and then it was whiskey. And I, and I thought to myself, oh, it's great. Of course, yeah. this is a why Romulan ale. Let's go to cliche, right? It's been in everything. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a good Well, because it's always followed up by Romulan ale. It's illegal. Right? It, it, that It's always followed up by that. So... Yeah. But it's sort of like a Cuban cigar thing. You know, it's illegal, but everybody has it anyway. Yeah. That's probably... Fuck, that's probably what it is, too. I didn't even think of that. That's probably what that is supposed to be. That's true. Um, Especially given that it was in the 60s when Cuba was more, you know... Yeah. In the... Uh, no, I, I, I mean, look, if that's the level of scrutiny you're going to lobby at the show, then go watch something else. Like, honestly. Go watch um, original series on... Go watch or, no, go watch Next Generation for the five thousandth time, and just, I mean, I, 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 yeah. As I said, I'm cheering the show on. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be different, but I'm along for the ride. I'm along for the ride. You know, Trek's about embracing diversity, and the franchise is very diverse, especially when it comes to the different types of shows. And I think that we owe it to Trek to give it a chance. And if you don't like it, nobody's forcing you to watch it, right? But that doesn't mean you have to sit around hating on it just because you don't, you may not like what it is. So. Yeah. Like yeah. I said mentioned before, Star Wars came out with an animated series that I didn't care about, and you know what? My life has continued on just fine. Now here's a question before I wrap up. Let me, wrap up, let me ask you this. I may have asked you this before, but I'll ask it again. The Star Wars animated series made reference to Rogue One, did they not? So Rogue One made reference to the um, the animated series Rebels. Do you could you see them doing this on Trek? Like, could you see Picard maybe making reference, name dropping them? No. Would you be okay with that? Yeah, by, I, I wouldn't care. Because by that here's time, the, thing. So the Star Wars shows they they were a little they took it a a lot more seriously than the show seems to. So, yeah. you know, like, these were, um, you know, they affected the bigger story, and and they were always kind of tied into the main saga that we knew. So yep. I think it made a little bit more sense. I, I'm just thinking, like, for Trek, like, just, maybe just, like, the fact that the characters exist. They don't maybe yeah, don't no, have to, drop, like, fine. name drop. Like, they don't have to necessarily play into a plot on Picard, right? Or vice versa. But yeah, totally, they'd be a little weird to have like the wacky. I mean, I wouldn't mind. I'd watch it, see what happened. Yeah. I I mean, I'd be okay with that. It only, you know, obviously, because if this is one thing that Trek fans like, is they like the and they they like the interconnectivity, the connective tissue amongst all the uh, shows. But um, yeah. But we'll be back um this coming weekend, I believe, um, oh, to yes. discuss our thoughts on the first episode, which airs tomorrow. Exciting. Call, I believe it's called Second Contact, I think is the name of the first episode. So, Anyone who watched Star Trek would know it's First Contact. Yeah. Clearly they don't watch it. Okay. Clearly. All right, uh, well, uh, we'll see everybody then. Thanks for listening. Peace out.